Welcome back to the Tiny League Central podcast. I'm your host, Gian, and today I am joined by a very special guest. He's one of the forerunners of English media in Thai football and the host of the Tiny League Tales podcast. Matt Riley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Welcome to sunny Exeter. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, recording this at the University of Exeter where Matt teaches. I'm sure it's okay to say that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so Matt does a lot of very interesting things, uh, apart from being a former Thai League uh, reporter and journalist and being a university professor. He's also writing books. So mm-hmm. Matt, please tell us about those books and any other parts of the work you do that you want to highlight. Yeah, sure. So at the moment, um, I've written two books. Uh, one is called uh, Kit and Caboodle. Um, football shirts and culture and it's very much got lots of Thai stories in there yeah but it looks at how kits are representations of culture so for example you've got a local club to us here called Forest Green where 50% of their shirt is made from bamboo mm-hmm. and that shows their their integrity and their environment environmentalism. Then there's a chapter on a Bundesliga 2 team called St. Pauli, mm. who have a very political approach to football, inclusive political approach, and that's represented in aspects of their kit. So, for example, they've got a skull and crossbones with the LGBT plus colours that, yeah. that explain that. And then in between each chapter, there's often stories from Thailand, yeah, stories yeah. about Thailand. And in fact, the first chapter, a big thanks to Kuntop at Subambri, is about a shirt that they had in 2013 that I think the design is one of the, the best I've ever seen. So mm. there's that one, but the big the big book, the, that, the first one will be out with Pitch Publishing, which is an independent publisher. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I've, I work with Fair Game, we've discussed before, Fair Game UK, maybe we can discuss that later. Yeah, yeah, that's um, one of the questions. But yeah. here at Exeter, I'm really proud to be a trust uh, trustee of the club. Yeah. So effectively I own a tiny fraction of it because it's one of only two English clubs, well, English league clubs, Newport County is the other, but they're based in Wales, but they're the only two English uh, trust clubs. So I, I give something each month, I'm a season ticket holder, and I also work with the club, and you and I are going to go down to the club later yeah. uh, to sort my paperwork out for <laughs> my job as an engagement officer. So yeah. my job is to promote the aspects of the club, and it's a, it's a great feeling to be connected to a club, especially like Exeter, mm-hmm. who, who only survive by selling players like Ethan Ampadu, Ollie Watkins, they sold a player yesterday to the championship club uh, Peterborough for a million pounds and without that they never survive so mm. it's really nice to do that and I think you'll enjoy looking around the stadium in the latest today so lots of football yeah but this plays my bills here at the University of Exeter <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'd love to talk about all types of football but our audience is here for Thai football yeah so I'm gonna go on to that with my next question Absolutely. so prior to entering the crazy world of, of Thai football mm. did you have any sort of preconceived notions of it at all, and how did the reality compare to that? Yeah, well, not really. I mean, basically, I worked as uh, head of public relations and marketing for Harrow School, which is in Don Moon. So yeah. my local team was Mung Tong United, plain old Mung Tong at the time, before the SCG. Yeah. And so I just finished playing football in, the, in, in Thai football, Thai Casuals League, with, uh, with Scolzi, Paul Murphy. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I had still, you know, I wanted some interaction with football. So a friend of mine took me to Mung Tong. At the time, there were three, three sections of it were just grass. There was only one stand, yeah. the, the kind of the oldest stand. Um, and I could see that something was building. I went the first time, it was about 300 fans, and we used to go to away games, and you'd have three sets of supporters at a game, and then we'd borrow the drum of one team, and then set, pass it on to another. And I could see something building as the stadium started to develop and fans started to come. Yeah, yeah. So I, I knew something was happening, and I happened to bump into Robert Procurer, who was working at the time with the club, and he talked about the, the, the sponsorship and the developments. 
But when I got into the game and when I actually tried to work within Thai football, um, it was it was slightly different. You know, it was the way that it was run was very different to the way English clubs would be run, for example. Yeah. Um, and it was it was quite quite an eye opener um, with things that I saw. But uh, but I really enjoyed it. I mean, I was able to kind of be there at a very early time when there was you know it wasn't on TV. There was very little money around. The stadiums were often very poor. We used to go to. I think it was Rancid University and Bangkok United used to play there and another team used to play there and I think even a third team did. So it was getting into the Thai football was, was definitely an eye-opener. Um, but it's one I really enjoyed. It really exciting, exciting time seeing the thing develop. And of course, Mung Chong were my local team. Yeah. Everyone kind of thought they were the glamour club and everyone just supported them because they won all the time. But there was no other team closer to me. Yeah. Uh, Bangkok United were a little bit further away. Mm. But then they kept moving, if you remember the early days. They yeah, kept yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was nice to fall on that. And, and then my group of friends came and uh, it became social. But social activity as well. So yeah, really and uh, just because I don't remember you, I don't sure you mentioned it, but how many years and which year to which year were you involved with the club? Trying to think now. Um, so I came to Thailand in around 2000. Mm-hmm. I worked as a head of English for nine years in 2009. I was a head of marketing for three years. So it was two, 2012, 2013. Okay, yeah. That type of time that I, I jumped right into. Your kind of time. Actually, 2012, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, 2012, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Right, so y- you were sort of there right when the big money was entering sort mm. of, and then you were there to see the impact of the big money. We'll come on to that in a bit because mm. football ownership, as you mentioned with your, but especially with Fair Game UK, is a big part of your mm. your outlook on yeah. football. We'll come back to that in a second. I'll start with questions about you mm. first. Uh, what compels someone to quit the security of their day job and venture into the crazy world of Thai football? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the biggest push factor was my mother died very suddenly of cancer. So oh. I had a big decision to make about what I wanted to do. And she'd never been able to follow her dreams. So at that exact moment, I felt that something big was gonna happen in Thai football. And I wanted to jump right in so that I had to be hungry and had to fight for anything I could to try and build it. So I had a very good job at Harrow, you know, we've got, four schools now in, in Bangkok. I say we, I still say we. Yeah. Uh, Bangkok, <laughs> Beijing, Shanghai, and Hong Kong. Um, but I felt that if I just did it as a part-time job or I just did it as a hobby, I wouldn't be able to, to make the impact that I wanted to make. Yeah. So I thought because of that kind of difficult situation with my mom and the fact there was something exciting, my wife was very supportive. You know, mm. she, she really supported me because you know, it was financially it was suicidal. I mean, yeah. Because I wanted to do everything properly, you know, I wanted to do everything to a to a high standard, yeah. and not to be taking funds that I was uncomfortable with. It meant that it was you know tremendously challenging financially, but uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I wanted to just jump all in, all, yeah, all yeah. or nothing. Yeah, and it was often nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the impact you made, I mean, I can say, mm. sitting here running an independent English language website years after it. Mm. Uh, and the stories you tell about having to struggle for basic things like a press pass, mm. like you, you've certainly paved a, a road for us. So mm. that take you know. Thank you. Thank it's you. great to see what you've done. You know, again, it's it's hard to believe in with what you do, even that press pass idea that you know we had to be almost threatening mm. in the Thai office where where in the Thai FA people would hide from us, and we would <laughs> we would have to explain. What we're actually doing is to promote Thai football in English to the whole idea was, you know, ASEAN. The, yes. the idea, when I worked a little bit, uh, I had a, I called it the full English at Montong. There was a series of YouTube videos I did. Mm. And the whole idea was ready for ASEAN, ready for the AEC. That's what I used to say at the end of every video. And talking in those days of the Thai FA, they'd say, well, you know, why do we want to be ready? 
why do we need English? And it's hard to believe that ever that time ever existed with what you where you are now. Yeah, with now we have the ASEAN quota, mm. which apparently I've heard um, potentially expires, oh. but they're going to hopefully renew it because yeah. it's been a commercial success. Yeah. So with the ASEAN quota, a, a lot of our you know success comes from the ASEAN football group on mm. Facebook. And yeah, the AFC Champions League and players going abroad. That's mm. what's driving the demand for English content. Mm, so absolutely. yeah, to, to go into there before and help create the demand for mm. it is it's a really big task. So thank you as well for yeah, for thank you and, and my colleagues. You know, we had a uh, we had Joseph who very kindly gave us his studio. Um, we had great reporters at matches. You know, we had mm. coordinated. What I and Paul Murphy as well doing reports as well. Coordinated high quality content yeah. uh, that was. That had integrity, and that yeah. was the key thing for us. It had to have integrity. We weren't going to do puff pieces for clubs or players or agents, you know. Yeah. And that's probably why we didn't make a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, that, but it was it was very enjoyable. I wonder if I could have joined. I was fourteen at the time when you were doing this. Ah, uh, yeah, well, you'd be very welcome. <laughs> I could have joined. Everyone was welcome. Uh, yeah. Um, similarly, what's compelled you all these years later to put out a podcast reflecting on those experiences? Yeah, I think it was the first lockdown. And it just made me reflect on things. And even all these years later, it, I still can't quite believe some of the things that I went through. So yeah. I decided just to kind of put it down, just just in, in a way, just for myself, but just to go back over things I'd written for Thai League Football, and because I've still got files on my phone, actually, and just kind of just process it almost. It's almost like a therapy session, thinking, <laughs> wow, you know, wow, that happened. Because yeah. it's taken me four years to get this job at Exeter City, and I'm, it's purely voluntary. Yeah. But I've tried everything. I've tried applying for jobs. I've tried. Uh, I've met the chairman here at the local club lots of times on different projects, but nothing's come of it. And it showed me that, as financially difficult as it was in Thailand, I got access to some unbelievable experiences. Yeah. And I wanted to record them. You know, I mean, the people like them, and they were chip chops of the world. Going to the the wedding of of Mung Tong uh, Kun, uh, Pop, the Mung Tong. Uh, I don't know if he's vice chairman still, but yeah, yeah, yeah. My wife and I go in there. There's like three thousand people in. Um, in the exhibition hall near, near the, near oh, the impact. impact and seeing this wedding cake that must have been 20 meters high still got the photo and you just think I need to process that again you know I need to think through that in fact the, that photo uh, is in uh, one of the books Kit Caboodle is in, is in the book but yeah it was it was almost like a therapy session but it, I really enjoyed doing it and it's, it's still there's still an aspect of I can't believe it happened it's just it's amazing because there were very unregulated Thai football days when I was there you know there were there were people and there were a lack of people going in there with a, a lack of oversight and regulation that could do things that mm -hmm. perhaps weren't in, in everyone's best interests. Yeah, and uh, I'll discuss the roles that you had over that time, mm -hmm. uh, which you've mentioned many times in the podcast. So during your time there, you went back and forth between official club media and independent media. Mm -hmm. uh, first for Mung Tong, then for Spanbury. Mm -hmm. uh, so could you please tell us about your journey through Thai football briefly? Yeah, I mean, basically it was um, started generally mm -hmm. in, with Thai League football. Yeah. But I realized that creating content for all of Thai football, particularly the Thai Premier League, as it was called then, was never going to get me any kind of uh, income, essentially. So uh, that's when I spoke to uh, Mung Tong. So I moved from general football, which in a way I was kind of more comfortable with, to basically being a uh, mouthpiece for the club. So, yeah. you know, to going from being positively critical about football, the things that we saw, to I can't be critical of whatever I might see for my club. I have to be purely a mouthpiece for them. So that that happened there and then um, well, could, uh, Top contacted me and then I started working with Sir um for, gosh, a year or probably two years actually before we came 
we left Thailand to go and live in uh, to go and live in Spain. So, um, in a way, I felt a little bit hamstrung working for the clubs. Yeah. But it meant that I was, you know, at the training on the club bus, flying around with the with the team, getting to know the players, really seeing how a club functions were within, which I couldn't do before in the general Thai media. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you went to Sapanbury and did a similar. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, I left I left Mumtong to go to Sapanbury, and uh, you know, Kuntok gave me. Amazing access, just incredible, really. Just, just another member of the squad in a way, you know. Everything, going to uh, pre-match meetings, going to, to Kuntop's office, doing tours with people, and he gave us access to him. So I, I brought Bangkok Patana to the stadium. I brought yeah, yeah. Uh, Harrow School to the stadium, um, seeing absolutely everything. And it was it was a you know great experience. I even had a club apartment in Sapanbury, and I had a driver taking me from Bangkok. Yeah. Um, and I'd, I'd stay there for two days a week. So it was an amazing experience. Amazing, but not that kind of journalistic approach that you guys have got now. During this time, going through all these different media roles, did you have a sort of underlying philosophy about the type of media you wanted to create? Yeah, for me, it was all about integrity. It was all about integrity. So no acceptance of agents' fees, no, again, no puff pieces, no uh, uh, trying to just basically make a promotion for a player because they'd asked for it. Trying to create high-quality media mm-hmm. and also our own media. So again, we were really lucky by, uh, on Sukhumit Sui 4, we had a small studio. So you could bring a player. So, for example, we brought Mika Chunonsi in. We painted him with his whole body, half with a Thai flag, yeah. half with a Welsh flag. Mm-hmm. And then it was our content, which of course was then stolen by people who didn't pay us for it. But we had to pay for the artist, had to pay for the studio time. So it was all about integrity. And again, the idea of producing something to a high quality that you're proud of. So a detailed breakdown of a match, whatever may come of it, just something that you feel is a professional approach. And there probably, well, there definitely wasn't a market for that at the time. But at least I, I never felt I'd just written something just to try and beg a job from somebody or, you know, just because I've been influenced by an agent, for example. Because mm. they were starting to come in as well. When I started, there were no agents. Then suddenly, whew, they were everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get a bit meta here, but what do you think should be the guiding philosophy of, let's say, a, a hypothetical English language independent media outlet in the Thai League? Yeah. Again, I would say just be proud of what you've produced. And if the market doesn't agree with it, it doesn't mean the market's right. Mm. If, you, if you've done something which has uh, the best intentions in mind and comes to an uncomfortable resolution, then that's the right thing. If people tell you you shouldn't be saying that, if all of the facts and the system suggest that is the outcome, you still have to stand by it. Mm. And that will create a rough ride. But then that's how you make progress, yeah. by, by meaningful and positive conflict. Unfortunately, you can't just bow down. I mean, um, Yeah, so moving on more generally to football ownership and sustainable financial models. Because, mm. again, you were in the Thai League before and after the big money came mm. into the Thai League. And you're currently part of a group known as Fair Game UK, yeah. which encourages more sustainable financial models in football club mm. ownership. So please tell us a little bit more about the main sort of philosophy and teachings of that group. Yeah, funnily enough, I've just had an email, which I'll read to you later, actually, from my local MP, um, which oh, wow. I, would I asked, to, asked him to join us. But basically, there are four principles. Sustainability, yep. integrity, yep. Um, external, um, external regulation, or yeah, in, impartial external regulation, and community. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, for example, my role is to coordinate the teams in the west of England and, and Wales, mm-hmm. to coordinate with local MPs, like I've got the email from my own, and then to keep pushing these ideas of integrity. So we've got a group of people, we've got around 20 clubs, mostly in the lower leagues, five in League Two, where Exeter are, there's uh, only one in the championship, Luton Town, 
And the idea is that we try to question, you know, today, probably Jack Redish is going to go for £100 million. Yeah, yeah. trying to question what that is actually adding. Obviously, it's taking away from my lovely club, but it, what is it adding from the, to the financial sustainability, The how many teeth has financial fair play got? So it's a non-governmental organisation. It's got very, very ethical approach. I'm really pleased to be working with it. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm hoping to, to generate more clubs. Unfortunately, Exeter's not in it. Bristol Rovers in the southwest are in League Two. And then new, again, Newport in Wales are. So it's got really laudable aims. Yeah. And it's there's a lot of MPs that support it now. And we hope that the um, legislation will reflect that um, you can't be spending. You know, I said to you the other day, my club, Aston Villa, have lost half a million pounds a week for yeah. two decades. Yeah. That's insanity. I teach business management, as you know. That's insane for anything else other than football. So it's a really impressive organisation. I'm really glad to be part of it and uh, hopefully there's uh, some real change that I can effect. Like, I'll just I'll just press you for an example if you can give one. Like, What is a regulation you'd want to pass into, into English football? Well, one of the things we're looking at is the massive gap between the Premier League, Championship, then to League One yeah. and the parachute payments which are so extreme from the Premier League to the Championship that they're encouraging this kind of casino mentality. So rather than having a financial cliff edge, yes. one of the things we're pushing for is a much sh smaller um, incline or decline, if you like, that allows some stability when uh, clubs go down, but it doesn't, again, encourage this, this casino mentality. Yeah, so yeah, we, yeah. we're hoping for much more balance between leagues. And again, my local team league in fourth division, really, League Two. If they don't sell players, they cannot survive. And mm -hmm. if they don't pay big money, which they can't, we won't, we, I says, we, we Exeter, but Exeter will never, they'll never get promotion. And their ultimate aim is to go to one more level up and be sustainable. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's one of the big things for me is those parachute payments mm -hmm. um, are encouraging the casino mentality, particularly because they're so, so extreme. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we hope that will be changed. That's one of the key things for Fair Game UK. Yeah, yeah. And um, did your experience witnessing football ownership in Thailand? Uh, sort of cue you into the importance of responsible and sustainable football governance? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, as you know, in Thailand, a lot of the, the owners are uh, from political backgrounds mm -hmm. with enormous resources. I mean, it was incredible resourcing that I, that I saw there. But it did concern me in terms of sustainability because there's this idea of, like in any company we say in businesses, what happens when the CEO gets hit by a bus? Yeah. What happens the next day? Now, in that scenario in Thailand, a lot of clubs don't have a sustainable approach to, to carry on from that point. Mm -hmm. And of course you hope it'll never happen, but you have to plan for it to happen. And the idea of succession, you know, we've seen Jeff Bezos have succession in Amazon and technically he's not in charge of that now. That does that does concern me in Thailand, um, but there's that great passion for the game there. That's what I, that will always drive yeah. the clubs forward, you know, yeah, and that, yeah. that wonderful thing of exploring the kingdom and seeing all these different fans and the great atmosphere. But, um, but the model, and it's all part of the development, you know, mm -hmm. English football's been around for two centuries and still there are some, some basket case clubs, you know, Swindon Town this morning has been uh, taken over because the last guy just ran it into the ground. Barry in the northwest of England died, you know, Macclesfield died. These, these are clubs that have been around for, cent for a century and a half and they've gone, Yeah, you know. I think that their time and culture is a big thing yeah. and this is, you talk about you went to Mung Tong, there's only one stand there when you mm. went, that was only 10 years ago. Mm, it's incredible. And it's come a long way. And I, this is a thing that I often get from Dale, because Dale has a perspective, uh, uh, Dale Farrington, Chombri FC, mm. has a perspective where he looks at it 
from when he started to now. And mm. he says that when we started, we were nowhere. Mm. And it takes time to build th- these things up. So yeah. Thai fans shouldn't be so pessimistic that, oh, our league is rubbish. It takes time and mm. it takes, it will, there will be challenges and here, here is the challenge. And, Definitely. Um, well, if you need funding for a league and the funding can only come from the, where the money is and the money happens to be where it is now, like, how else can you do it? Absolutely. So that's how it is. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of pessimism, both globally and within Thailand, about the state of the game and the influence of big money. Mm. Do you think that pessimism is warranted? I would say you've got two alternatives. To be worried about big money or have no money at all. Uh. And I would say that I would prefer the first instead of the second. Mm. If you take the example of Exeter City, they, I could be watching them on Saturday, first league game of the season against Bradford, with up front Ollie Watkins, yeah. midfield Ethan Ampadu, Guy Joel Randall is now in the championship. Can name you four or five others that are now in the championship, and the only reason they've gone is that Exeter has no money at all. Yeah. So the problems of having huge amounts of money, and when I used to go around Asia with Tom and look at other leagues at the time, the, the Vietnamese league and so on, the, the problems of having huge amounts of money, a lot of people would say, well, try it with none at all. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that does create hunger and extra, a very hungry club, but we're talking about a team where, as a player, you get one kit a season, okay? Now, with Mung Tom and Sipambri, it was two a game. You know, even at that small level, extra simply doesn't have the money. The, the engagement hub I'm going to show you later in the city was borrowed secondhand mm. and they had to borrow from a sponsor of some AstroTurf just to fill, complete the floor and that makes you a hungry team but it also means you are you making the progress that you'd like yeah you know? yeah the money is needed mm, absolutely having so people say that you need a strong league to have a strong national team yeah and it's an argument of the opposite which is basically to say that um, when you have a strong league with a lot of money being poured in very quickly and wages inflating very quickly, mm. uh, what happens is that the wages grow faster than the infrastructure, than mm. the development, than the quality of players being produced, and than the quality of training. Mm. Wages grow a lot faster than that. Mm. And what ends up happening is that those wages are inflated relative to everywhere else in the world. So it makes it more difficult for Thai players to go abroad because human beings don't want to take a pay cut. And mm-hmm. that, that's very reasonable, that's very rational. And I think Chana Tip has talked about it a few times, mm-hmm. that he has to take a pay cut at first. He had to leave a lot of like fame and um, comfort behind mm-hmm. to go to Constantor Sapporo. And Chana Tip is an incredible guy. And yeah. he's oh. a very driven guy. And he's, yeah. he's a inspiration for, and I say this like completely honestly, not because I have to say it because Chana yeah. Tip is a hero for talent. He's genuinely an inspirational figure because yeah. of that drive to, to, to push himself, even when he can stay home, yeah. Win every time the Thai league every year mm-hmm. uh, and have comfort, mm-hmm. and it's it it's hard to expect players to make that decision. As much as we, we want them to make the decision, yeah, they have to think about their careers, about their families. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to expect that decision from everybody. Yeah. So the argument goes that the league um, deflating a little bit mm-hmm. is good in that it allows those players. It makes that calculation for the players more skewed towards I should go abroad mm. and that's good for the national team mm. do you think there's any stock in that do you agree with that at all? I think particularly if we look at Thailand it's an incredibly complex situation because one of the things I loved about Thailand is the way that families are so closely bonded mm-hmm. so if you look at Thailand and you compare let's say to an, an African player in a, in a league that's in really poor shape and they have to go away away to get a, a better standard of living and so on. You're leaving purely for negative reasons. Whereas with a Thai player, you want to stay for positive reasons. You know, you've got family, you've got a wonderful culture, wonderful food. There's a tremendous feeling of of pride of being Thai. Yeah. 
So there's that situation there as well. In terms of the money, I mean, I've seen, even when I was in Thailand four years ago, some of the wages were enormous. The bonuses that were given, all this type of thing. So you don't have that incentive. But at the same time, I feel that a strong league has to be a foundation for a national team mm. rather than a national team being a foundation for a, a, a league. Oh, okay. It's rather like you know building a roof first in a house. If you haven't got a sustainable league, and that's the key thing, a sustainable league, financially, uh, as well as in terms of your... Um, attitude to ASEAN players and foreign players, mm. then I don't think you're going to make the leap forward. You know, it's it, a player should still aspire to working for their national team if they're in a really strong league, because then, by being in the national team and being successful, yeah. then they could get the the J League or even like Cohen trying to get into the Europe, into yeah. the, the Belgian league, um, and you you've still got that. But again, I think with the Thai player, particularly with the Thai player, because you've got, you know, even for me, I felt that pull of staying longer we're supposed to stay for two years in Thailand we were there for 16 years you know and that's probably how a player feels as well so you you don't think that the Thai league should instead sort of push players to go abroad push its national team forward fans because I think the the secret to making Thai football work is the fans mm. that's really the secret it's a unique selling point yeah, yeah. once the fans get in the stadiums mm. I think a lot of things will get not everything will be fake obviously mm. a lot of things that are deeply rooted we have to that will take time. Oh gosh, yeah. But I think once fans get in, mm. once merchandising, TV rights, and uh, kit, you know, ticket gates, merchandising, TV, once that's profitable, yeah, a lot of things will fall into place. Definitely. I think also I would suggest my input would be before you start again, tell the players that they have a product to sell because the behaviour on the pitch, I sometimes see it on yeah. YouTube now. It's it's never going to sell yeah. when somebody is you know clearly wasting time, the lack of respect for referees, yeah. uh, the petulance. This is a great opportunity for Thai football to say we are a product. The players are responsible for promoting the product. And we saw in the Euros, referees. If you're lying on the floor in the Euros, they'll just carry on without you. You know, there's, yeah. there's much more respect. Um, there's much more transparency and use of VAR, even though the systems. That's another podcast entirely. But yeah, yeah I think this is, there are, there, there are some wonderful, unique selling points. You know, the fact that for years you could go and get a ticket at 7-Eleven. Yeah. I, I have to go to the stadium that I'll go to do later to get my ticket sometimes. You yeah. Think, this, this, is, this is a disconnect, you know, so there are some great things that are happening. Yeah. But again, on the pitch, they need to realise that they are the product, the players. So don't you think getting fans in the stadium is going to will only come once they see their national team play well. Once they see their national team make it to the latter stages of an Asian Cup or, dare we say it, one day qualify for a World Cup. Don't we need that to get the fans into the stadium? For me, and this is the big difference when I first started, it used to be basically Bangkok League. Yes. The regionalism, I think, has been wonderful. I mean, I love flying up to Chiang Rai. Yeah. Actually, the stadium is a model on Villa Park, which is great. Uh, the Chiang Mai uh, Stadium. The, I think the regionalism mm. uh, will really help that. Yeah, for because sure. Because you get, you get that kind of feeling of, this is my region, I want to support it, and obviously, Bori Rao um, is, is a massive example. Yeah, Sisakir um, as well. Now yeah. in T3, but... Yeah, that club they have a new stadium yeah. until they have yeah and I think that's one of the things that really chimes with being an English fan you know I know Exeter City are rubbish don't tell them that later but I, I, they are my local team I see them I meet them I work for them and I, that's why I support them I'm paying more for my season ticket than West Ham United believe it or not okay? mm. my ticket's £415 you can get one at West Ham for 300 and watch Premier League football yeah. but I accept that because they're my team and I think again that's one of the great things that Thai football has because you know again I'd like to see the first league table the first time I've worked in Thai football I would say there was probably only one or two teams outside Bangkok yeah 
that was it. Yeah, now we have, what, five in Eastside this year? I yeah, think powerful teams, teams as well. Yeah, yeah, changing yeah. the balance. You've got different teams winning the league. and Four or five, I'm not sure. I might, yeah. I might have messed that one up, but yeah, that's yeah. okay. Yeah. They can call me out and later, my colleagues. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll, I'll just end by two, two more questions. Yep. One is, uh, beyond what we mentioned, what changes do you think have to be made for the Thai League to prosper? I think you need continuity. Yeah. You need more, particularly the international team, you can't be hiring and firing every five minutes. Yeah. You look at Gareth Southgate, the way that he's progressed through the age range of England, yeah. he's taken huge amounts of criticism, but he's had the support of the FA, mm-hmm. and now he's in a really strong place. You cannot just pick a coach up like you buy a new bottle of water. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the key things. The key things for me is you've got to have some kind of succession, some kind of long-term thinking, and some kind of sustainable approach to the way that things are done that doesn't matter who's in there yeah. the system's still the same and again I just want to say there's masses of problems in English football yeah. even after two centuries yeah. but there has to be a, a better way particularly for your national team because it's it just seems to be spinning from one to the next to the next and certainly with Brian Robson and with Peter Witt when I spoke to them the things they told me that it was very frustrating and I don't see that having changed yeah. the influences that have that caused their um, and uh, not to do so well, let's say. Uh, and anything else to mention? No, I mean, that was the key thing for me, is, yeah. is that idea of a long-term objective rather than a short-term hit. At club level as well. At of club course, level, gosh, the, sure. the, the players that I've seen come and go so quickly, and coaches. Yeah. Um, you know, the, it's, a, it's a revolving door situation where yeah. I've seen a player in training on, at the beginning of the week thinking, oh, there's a lot of potential there, and then, then he's gone, yeah. you know, um, for reasons that are not always connected to football, and that's that has to be something to address. Yeah, I mean... When a manager stays two seasons at a club, we're like, yay, fantastic. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, well, look at what Manor did. That's the, with that, uh, the way that he was able to stay at Bangkok United that yeah. whole time, having the full support of the chairman and, and doing fantastic work, you know? Yeah. Uh, lastly, uh, are there any people you want to highlight or mention now for their positive contributions to your time entirely? I mean, the, the, Paul Murphy was great, a great person to work with. I really enjoyed playing for him and against him as well in yeah. football. Uh, Kun Toppers, Pam Marie was, was very welcoming to me, mm-hmm. gave me absolute access to everything, and I really appreciated that. And we still connect with each other yeah. uh, to this day. Um, and, you know, I probably won't be anybody in the Thai FA because we always felt like we were the sort of enemy within with them. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, also the chairman of. Um, Rawi, but um, Tom were always maybe welcome. Um, invited me to a signing with uh, Atletico Madrid, yeah. uh, which was a very that's a day big for us to talk about later. Uh, which was a very interesting day. Um, so there were some good people, um, but unfortunately there were a lot of people that made life very difficult for us, even though we were only trying to promote Thai football. But uh, there were there were some good people. I love you know players I've met, people like Jareel and lots of people like him that were just really a joy to get to know. Yeah, okay, so thank you, Matt, for joining us today on an episode of Thai League Central. Went through a lot today, football club ownership, future of Thai football, uh, Thai media, and so on and so forth. Thank you so much for joining us, and to the listeners, thank you as well, and see you all next time.